This episode is sponsored by Code Health. Code connects healthcare providers to the largest community of medical coding professionals in the country with over 4,600 domestic certified coders. As a single stop for all coding needs, Code's on-demand model has solved for daily staffing challenges and coding inefficiencies by allowing providers to access the right coder at the right time while gaining insights to better manage their coding operations. To learn more about Code, visit CodeHealth.com, that's K-O-D-E Health.com, or email Code directly at partnerships at CodeHealth.com. Hello, and welcome to Voices in Healthcare Finance. I'm Erica Grotto. Today on the podcast, I'm talking with Dr. Andrew Hurtler from New Century Health about the opportunities telehealth provides in oncology. Later, I'll have some great productivity tips from Steve Robbins, including the best piece of email advice I've ever received. But first, let's hear about what's happening in the news with Rich and Chad. Hello, this is Rich Daly, a senior writer and editor for HFMA. Hi, this is Chad Mulvaney, a policy director with HFMA. Thanks for joining us once again on the Beyond the News segment of the podcast, where we take a quick peek at the significance of recent healthcare finance news developments. Among major recent developments was a September 19th series of changes to the definition of lost revenue as used in the calculation of provider relief fund payments. The uncertainty over the changes led some lower income hospitals to not spend their COVID grants and others scrambling to find funding in case they need to pay back those grants, according to several industry watchers I've interviewed. So, Chad, what provisions in those changes would you highlight for finance leaders? You know, Rich, I would sort of think of this as kind of a a good, the bad, and the ugly. On the good, obviously, we saw an expanded definition of what might be counted as expenses were attributable to the coronavirus, specifically those for maintaining the healthcare or healthcare delivery capacity. I think that was a broader definition than a lot of folks had anticipated. In terms of the bad, obviously, it is just the new definition now of lost revenue, which really is lost margin. And then also the fact that subsequent to with this becoming a calendar year analysis, many of the large accounting firms stating that you wouldn't be able to recognize the COVID provider relief funds attributable to lost revenue until after the end of the year. And that was quite a surprise for a number of organizations, particularly the 630 fiscal year ends and the 930 fiscal year ends. And then I think the ugly on this is just continued uncertainty and ambiguity. I mean, the instructions are six pages long. I appreciate brevity more than the next human in, in regulatory documents. But I think when we're talking about something that governs $75 billion in taxpayer dollars, six pages is a little light. And so one of the things that I would anticipate is that we're going to continue to get clarifications from HHS addressing some of these issues. So, Chad, what is HFMA doing right now to respond to uh, the HHS in terms of the September 19th guidance? Yeah, you know, we're, we're working closely with our members and also a number of the consulting and legal firms that are helping our members navigate these issues to try to document the questions that HHS's new guidance has raised. And we were, are submitting a letter to HHS, not only outlining these questions, but hopefully suggesting some clarifications that would be useful. You know, we think we see some t- intent in the letter and it would be good to have HHS kind of verify that what we, what we believe we're reading into the letter is correct. And of course, those reporting changes were a couple weeks before the latest release of $20 billion 
in general distribution grants under the PRF. What should providers know about these latest pandemic response funds? So $20 billion was just recently released. Actually, the the application process started on Monday, October 5th. So what providers will need to do is go to the Provider Relief Fund HHS website, click through to the portal and apply for the grants. Essentially, the batting order on this is they will basically top off organizations that have not hit 2% of their, their net patient service revenue. And then there's another sort of anything that's left over will then be used to provide additional funding to providers who have not received sufficient uh, provider relief funds to offset expenses related to coronavirus and sort of lost margin related to coronavirus. Right. And that's uh, those expenses obviously have continued well after the initial rounds of funding. So there may be some need there. Uh, One other thing is to check with you on the recent HHS renewal of the ongoing federal public health emergency for an additional 90 days that will extend it into January. That's key for the continuation of a number of ongoing waivers and other allowances, right, Chad? Uh, That's correct. So basically all of the waivers, the telehealth waivers, the site of care waivers, particularly as you think about repurposing exempt units into acute care units for Medicare patients in terms of providing surge capacity for COVID patients, the ability to use the patient's home as a hospital outpatient department for providing care. All of those waivers and then some are sort of extended as a result of the expansion of the PHE. And it's certainly nice to see that HHS didn't wait to the last minute to extend that, that, that deadline again. Okay, well, thanks a lot for all those insights, Chad, on obviously these uh, fast-moving and multifaceted developments. And of course, our listeners can keep up with the latest legal and policy developments related to COVID relief funds by checking out our daily news site at hfma.org forward slash news. Thanks for listening. Leverage the knowledge of industry experts to fast track your organization's success. With seven different topic-specific programs, HFMA's on-site education is designed to empower your staff to better manage costs, enhance efficiency, and integrate financial information with the delivery of healthcare. Learn more at hfma.org slash onsite. There's a phrase you see on every piece of literature about cancer screening, early detection. But the COVID-19 pandemic has many people putting off medical care, including screenings. And it makes sense. I know a lot of people missing parties and vacations, but I've yet to talk to anyone itching to get back into the world so they can get that long-awaited colonoscopy or mammogram. But as my guest today points out, telehealth can get patients back on their regular screening cycles and provide a better patient experience for those with a cancer diagnosis. Andrew Hurtler, the Chief Medical Officer at New Century Health, is here to tell you more. So before we get into care for patients with a cancer diagnosis, I'd like to talk about screenings. Um, They're crucial, but they're not happening as often right now because people aren't going in for care that does not feel urgent. What is the danger there, financially speaking, and how can telehealth help? The danger in cancer care is that when screening is not done, patients will still be diagnosed, but they'll still be diagnosed with more advanced disease than they otherwise would be, something we call stage migration. 
all cancers are, are given a stage. If it's very early, very localized, that stage one, as it begins to spread first regionally, becomes stage two and three. And when it's widely disseminated, that is metastatic disease. With time passed without screening, patients are more likely to present with more advanced disease. And the the big fear I have about this is that patients will move from a curable setting to an incurable setting. At the same time, this means they're going to require more extensive treatment than they would. It's generally to treat someone in a curative fashion Generally, there are exceptions, but we're talking four to six months of treatment. When someone has disease that is not curable, they're going to be on treatment essentially indefinitely. Uh, It's going to go, there may be breaks, but they will likely require at at the very least intermittent treatment uh, for the rest of their lives. And in terms of how can telehealth help, I believe it will primarily help in terms of screening by freeing clinicians up for more screening visits, for more visits for pap smears, for more visits for breast exams, which cannot be done virtually by moving other visits to the telehealth setting. For patients who already have a diagnosis, how can telehealth help there? We found within the oncology practices we work with that in some of them, as many as two-thirds of visits were occurring by telehealth during the pandemic. This has a number of advantages. Probably chief among them is for the patients in terms of reducing both their, their personal expenses for travel costs, for gasoline, for taking time off work for uh, hiring uh, someone to take care of your children. All of this can be a burden for someone when they go to a a physician's office to visit. I think also often patients going through cancer therapy don't feel well and and making those trips in and that travel can be difficult. It also avoids exposure of the patient. Cancer patients often have a suppressed immune system and they are more susceptible to infection. Uh, We've always been concerned about putting large uh, numbers of patients together in, in a waiting room. That concern has been heightened during the COVID-19 pandemic. And by being able to do a proportion of the patient's visits at home, this can decrease that risk as well. So I'd like to touch on the ED a little bit. We want to keep people out of the ED who don't actually need to be there. What are some opportunities for patients with cancer to be treated elsewhere, perhaps where they're more comfortable and keeping the ED free for ED appropriate care? The real goal is to get the patient evaluated and seen by uh, the oncology practice, and um, there are a number of ways this can be facilitated. One of them is, in fact, telehealth, to have patients and teach patients that they should call in early when they have symptoms, and one can try to intervene. Another step that we have taken with the practices we work with is we've developed a series of, of nurse triage pathways where when the patient either calls in or one could use them when the patient is seen by telehealth. But for any symptom, 
walks them through a standard series of questions. You record the answers and each answer guides you to the next question, categorizes the severity of the symptom and then prompts uh, the appropriate interventions. And that intervention may be something that call in a prescription, keep the patient at home, give them some advice. It may be that you need to get them into the practice to be seen that day or, or at least within 24 hours. Or if the patient is really ill, it can flag that this patient really does need to go to the emergency room. So the combination of triage pathways, standardization tools, and the use of telehealth has the potential to really get the patient seen quickly and by their oncology practice, keep them out of the emergency room. And this has been shown, actually, to keep them out of the emergency room to decrease hospitalizations. How do you benchmark your revenue cycle performance? Many organizations measure success compared to past performance. Others leverage software to benchmark against other facilities that share the same technology. But that only paints part of the picture. What about comparing your performance to your peers? Peers that you define in custom peer groups. MapApp is the online benchmarking tool from HFMA that helps organizations compare their performance against data from more than 600 facilities. Interested in taking the next steps to identify your revenue cycle opportunities? Visit hfma.org forward slash MapApp. I've been a podcast listener for years, and one of the first that became a regular download for me was Steve Robbins' podcast, Get It Done Guy. His tagline was, work less and do more, and his productivity tips changed the way I work. He doesn't do that podcast anymore, although you can find some archived episodes online. These days, Steve is the chief operating officer of a small investment company devoted to creating social good. But I still love his productivity tips and thought you would too, so I invited him on to share some of his expertise, starting with the best piece of email advice I've ever received. One of the biggest problems of email is that it piles up, and it doesn't pile up with regard to what you want. It piles up with regard to what everyone wants from you. And furthermore, there's really no way to throttle it, right? Because you're not in control of how much you get. The amount that you get is the amount that other people want to send you. And because no one wants to do their own work, they all want you to do it for them, it's really important to do what you can to throttle your own incoming flood of email. And one of the biggest problems is vacations and weekends, for that matter, because there's an awful lot of people out there who think, oh, you're on vacation. Well, it's okay. I'm just going to send you lots of things for you to do for me so that when you get back from vacation, you'll have plenty to do as if you're not going to already. So what you want to do is when you're going on vacation, you want to stem the email flood as quickly as possible and as completely as possible. And the way that I usually do that is with an autoresponder. Your almost every email program and every email service, like a Gmail or ProtonMail or FastMail, allows you to set up a vacation autoresponder. A vacation autoresponder is a message that automatically gets sent to anyone who sends you email while you're away. So you say, from these dates, send out my autoresponder. What I put in my autoresponder is I say, thank you so much for writing. I am currently on vacation, or I may, or I may just say traveling or unavailable right now and will not be back in the office until September 14th or whatever the actual date is. 
at that time, I'll be deleting everything that arrives because I need to be able to keep on top of my work. If anything is truly important, please send it back to me after September 14th. Thank you. Now, of course, when I get back on September 14th, maybe I really will just delete everything without looking at it. Uh, but I probably will scan it. And if there is anything that looks super important that stands out that somebody didn't then send again after September 14th, I might call them back and say, you know, right before I was about to hit delete, I realized you were the most important person in the world. So I was going to respond to your email and call you right back. I love that tip. I have three children, so I have had three maternity leaves. I've used that tip every time, and it is, it's so helpful, especially for those longer absences, because you get a, an awful lot of email pile up in that time, first of all. And second, half of the time when you come back, even if you try to go through it and you try to respond to everything, there are fires that have long since been put out and you're wasting your time trying to catch up with people who have been satisfied with an answer for weeks now. So I, I really, really love that tip. So you just got at two really important underlying principles. One is that people don't necessarily need your help for real. They're actually just lazy. And rather than solve their own problem, which they will do if you're not available to solve it for them, they will email you. But that's one of the things that, that I think is super important for people to realize. People who email you with problems, an awful lot of the time, they will be able to figure out their own problems. It's like somebody who asks you what a word means while they're sitting at a computer in front of Google and you know, you're standing by the water cooler 10 feet away. You're like, well, let's see. You have access to the entire world's knowledge. Take your fingers, put your fingers on the keyboard, and look up the word, rather than asking me to go back to my desk and put my fingers on the keyboard. Like it's just, it's just ridiculous. But I think that that a lot of people get out of the habit of understanding that oh, I can solve my own problems. I guess. Now another thing is I take this one step further. I don't just do it on vacation. I do it on a daily basis. And the way what I do is something different on a daily basis. It's really important to have a firm limit on how much you check your email. If you work in a work environment like I do, you can have dozens and dozens and dozens of emails arriving every day, you know, sometimes for good reason, sometimes not for good reason. Sometimes it's just people are sending email and CCing everybody because they feel the deep desire to do that. And what you want to do is you want to make sure that people are not interrupting you by sending you email. The number one way that people interrupt you by sending you email is that they send you some email and they're going to expect a response in the next 15 minutes. So I designate a couple of times during the day when I commit to checking my email, like 11 a.m., 4 p.m. So something that gives me a chance to do focus time in the morning, then check my email, then more focus time in the afternoon, and then check my email one more time while there's still enough time in the day to, to get to anything that's like super important. So those are going to be the two times. Then in the signature of my email, I say, I only check email twice a day. If you need to get a hold of me immediately, call this number. And I have my phone number. Now it says call or text this number. This way, if somebody sends me email and gets upset that I didn't read it and respond to it immediately, I can say, oh, I'm so sorry. Did you notice the signature of my email? Because, you know, over the last five years, I've sent you probably close to 319,000 emails, every one of which has exactly the same signature, which tells you I only check my email twice a day and tells you how to get a hold of me instantly in the event that it's important. So, you know, I'm, I'm terribly sorry that I, I wasn't prompt, but now you know for next time. 
And what you're basically saying to them is, uh, you know, if you couldn't even be bothered to read my me to read my message, why in the world should I be bothered to interrupt what I'm doing to read yours? And doing this, a you establish a boundary, which is you're only going to check twice a twice a day, but much more subtly, and people never think about this part, is that. You are giving them an out, which is the phone number, but in order to make a phone call, they have to use their fingers and their muscles. So they actually have to find their phone and pick it up, and then they have to unlock it, and then they have to search for their phone app, and then they have to look at the screen and see your number, and they have to look down at the keypad and say, oh my gosh, it is so much difficulty. I have used that signature for 19 years, and I have never had someone call me. So we talked a little bit about how to get out of doing things that are not productive for you. And now I want to go the opposite way and talk about how to do things that are productive. One of my favorites is one that I call speed dating your tasks. I did not invent it. I learned it from a man named Mark Forster out of the book, How to Get Everything Done and Still Have Time to Play. And speed dating your tasks, let's say you have five things that you've been procrastinating and you want to make some serious progress on these five things. You write down the five things and then you get an egg timer and you set the egg timer for five minutes and you then turn it on and you work on the first task for five minutes. And as soon as the egg timer goes off, you reset it and you work on the second task for five minutes, go through all five tasks. That takes 25 minutes. Then take a five minute break. Then do it again with five minutes. Take another five minute break. So now it's been an hour. Now change the egg timer to 10 minutes and go through and do five cycles of 10 minutes on each, you know, 10 minutes on each task and then take a 10 minute break. And that's going to be your second hour. And then if you want to keep using the speed dating technique, you can either go up to 15 minutes or you can stay with 10 minutes. What this does, and I have a lot of deep psychological theories as to why it works, because supposedly multitasking like this doesn't work. I mean, if you look at some of the studies, they say, oh, if you get interrupted, it takes you forever to get back to it. But there's something about choosing five specific tasks, doing them in rapid succession, and stopping right on the moment and using very small blocks of time. You're using five or ten minutes, which is something that you have, you'll have very, very little resistance to psychologically. And there's something about that that makes you able to cycle through those five tasks over and over and over and be really super sharp and focused on each one. And that's speed dating your tasks. And I would have to say that in a perfect world, I did that every day with all of my most important things. The reality is I probably remember to do it once or twice a month. And when, it, when I do, I am always amazed at how much progress I make and how well it works, and then I forget to do it the following day. So I'm sure there's something deep and Freudian there. I have a little postscript to this interview. I left this conversation feeling inspired. So before I shut down my computer for the evening, I listed five things that I wanted to accomplish the following day. The next morning, I dutifully set my timer, and I'm here to tell you it felt so good to know that for each of those little blocks of time, I had accomplished something. I'd like to tell you that I do that every day now. I don't, but I highly recommend trying it. Voices in Healthcare Finance is produced by the Healthcare Financial Management Association and written and hosted by me, Erica Grotto. Sound editing is by Linda Chandler. Brad Dennison is our Director of Content Strategy. Our President and CEO is Joe Pfeiffer. We always welcome your feedback, so if you'd like to reach out, put us on your list of five things to do and spend five minutes writing us an email at podcast at hfma.org. We check it twice a day.